On this week's 51%, a woman who made history in New York politics takes in Kamala Harris's victory. There's a changing landscape in theater arts funding. To see arts organizations of color uplifted at this moment is just profoundly empowering. And a Buddhist teacher brings Buddhist women to the fore. It wasn't just my story, but I ended up telling stories of other Buddhist women, uh, the women surrounding the Buddha, and also uh, women in current time. I'm Allison Dunn, and this is 51%. New York State Senate Majority Leader Andrea Stewart-Cousins, who made history in 2019 as the first woman to lead the chamber, is celebrating fellow Democrat Vice President-elect Kamala Harris's history-making victory. Oh, it was just, for me, it was so, I mean, it was elevating, it was exciting, and she said, I, every time, you know, a woman, a woman of color breaks one of these, and and people say glass ceilings, and sometimes they're concrete ceilings almost. And when when we break it again, it underscores that the dream of America is still alive. And as as um, Vice President-elect Harris said during her speech, you know, it sends a message to all all the little girls out there, no matter where they are, that um, you know they have a future that that's bright and and things are possible. And actually. Uh, you know, I think it sends a message to everyone because it just says that, you know, there are still tremendous possibilities and there is a lot of uh, new ground to be covered and persist and persist. And I think uh, Kamala will bring an amazing amount of not only experience and, and expertise and a professionalism, but also, you know, bring, be able to operate with compassion uh, and with the understanding that this is public service and it's, it's, it's something that she has to do for all of America, as uh, obviously President-elect Biden is, is expressing day to day as we await uh, this drama, uh, the end of this drama. And I don't have to tell you, if you can't see it, you don't think you can be it. And, uh, you know, it's just so important. And I'm wondering if, if during your time as Senate Majority Leader, you've had any experience uh, in, in hearing about maybe, you know, little girls who look to you and say, hey, Always. I can do that, too. Always. I mean, the thing is that for those of us who are in these positions, and I think even in your position, I I was a journalist at, at some point, but when I was growing up, I didn't see any women in the role of a journalist, really. I mean, it has been quite exciting to see the amount of spaces and places that we are now filling because we have the talent and there were just barriers. And so I all the time hear from from people that say, you inspired me to do this or that or this or that. And, of course, I'm not mindful of it, but that is, in large part, what I set out to do as well. I, I want to be someone that, like you said, if you could see me, you can be me. 
And I want to set an example of how I think this should be done on behalf of the people that we serve. And I want you to be inspired by my journey, my struggle, but my success. And know that if you do, you know, believe in yourself and you do the work, you have a greater possibility now than ever before to achieve your goals. Sure. That's great. I mean, back way back then, that's, oh, you can grow up to be president, you could grow up, and people said it, but as you said, they didn't see it. When I was growing up, I didn't see any, any number of political women. I mean, Shirley Chisholm was on the scene, obviously, but just, right. there were just so few, so few role models. Right, it kind that of rang a little it, hollow. Yeah, I mean, just so few. In 2012, Stuart Cousins of Yonkers became the first woman, an African-American woman, to lead a New York State Legislative Conference. In 2019, she was elected temporary president and majority leader of the state Senate. There is a changing landscape of arts funding in the Twin Cities in Minnesota. KFAI Sheila Regan brings us this report. In Minneapolis, I'm Sheila Regan. To see arts organizations of color uplifted at this moment is just profoundly empowering. Typically, we would invest very heavily in the largest and best resourced amongst the performing arts organizations. So to see it reversed, it really flies in the face of historic philanthropic practice. I am Sarah Bellamy. I'm the artistic director of Penumbra, also a scholar and practitioner of racial healing. In September, Penumbra Theater, the flagship black theater company, founded in 1976 and based in St. Paul, Minnesota, became one of 20 arts organizations around the country declared as American cultural treasures by the Ford Foundation. Penumbra will get $2.5 million as part of the grant, with an additional 200000 to be redistributed to four other theaters that are run by and serve communities of color. I founded the Twin Cities Theaters of Color Coalition on the heels of the Scottsboro boys being up at the Guthrie. The story about those nine boys and young men was already lovingly told by Langston Hughes in a play, Scottsboro Limited. That piece could have been produced by a black writer. Instead, a white producer, white director, white music director decided to tell this story using a, an extremely painful medium, minstrelsy, to talk about the attempted lynching of these children. Among the coalition members is Rihanna Yazi, founder of New Native Theatre Company. We saw how there were a few plays that had just come out, the Ordway producing Miss Saigon for the third time to a large community protest by the Asian American community, and how that basically went on deaf ears. And then pretty uh, shortly to follow after that was uh, Bloody Bloody Andrew Jackson by um, Minneapolis Musical Theatre. And all of these sorts of plays using specific cultural groups as metaphors, as stereotypes, create such a negative impact. And then there were eight, eight little Indians trying to get to heaven. One found Jesus and In 2015, Sarah Bellamy's idea to create a center for racial healing at Penumbra began to germinate. We have always used the art to 
dream ourselves into other realities to confront the difficulty of our, our shared past. Penumbra launched the first Racial Healing Artist Institute in May. In six weeks, the theater brought 20 artists together, virtually, to dream about programs that could live at the Center for Racial Healing. While we were in the midst of that, George Floyd was murdered and the uprisings occurred and um, we, we really had to live into what we were dreaming. We had to actualize the, the racial healing space uh, in real time. The Ford Foundation made its new funding decision in June after massive protests erupted across the country following the murder of George Floyd. Soon, other funders became partners in the initiative. In Minnesota, the McKnight Foundation is partnering as a lead funder with Ford to match a $5 million investment that will go directly to arts organizations of color and artist collectives in, uh, in Minnesota. So that's $10 million that will be supporting BIPOC um, arts efforts locally. The funding goes toward addressing significant gaps in the way artist institutions are funded. I'd say 90 plus percent of the funding goes to predominantly white institutions and uh, theaters of color and institutions of color, especially institutions led by women of color, um, traditionally get much less funding. That's Lily Tung Crystal, Artistic Director of Theater Moo, a theater that is part of the coalition. And so the Theaters of Color Coalition in the last three years has worked with some of the funders in the Twin Cities to transform philanthropy so that more money is going to and more funding is going to theaters and institutions of color. That need became significantly more clear in 2020 when the coronavirus global pandemic highlighted disparities already in place. It's a really important time for arts organizations with authentic connections to the communities that are disproportionately suffering from the pandemic, arts organizations that are disproportionately suffering from racial hatred that is being stoked through this election season, to both band together, work together, but also to be trusted, to be invested in to be empowered. Business as usual has not served any of us well. We need some unusual business right now, and I am just excited to see that some of that is beginning to actually um, gain momentum. The hope is that this new infusion of funding will have long-lasting ripple effects. It's, it's a really exciting sort of constellation of investment that I hope will have a broad and deep impact. For KFAI, I'm Sheila Regan. BIPOC stands for Black, Indigenous, and People of Color. The first Black woman to assume the top role leading fellow students at the U.S. Naval Academy will take up that position next semester as brigade commander. That's according to a release from the Academy. Midshipman First Class Sidney Barber will be the commander for the spring semester. Brigade commander is the highest leadership position within the student body. The semester-long position is selected through an application and interview process by senior leadership and the commandant's staff. Barber of Lake Forest, Illinois, is a mechanical engineering major and aspires to commission as a Marine Corps ground officer. Barber will be the 16th woman selected for brigade commander in the 44 years women have been attending the academy. 
Barber initiated a STEM outreach program that leverages mentoring, literature, and service lessons to serve middle school-aged girls of color and led a team to organize the inaugural U.S. Naval Academy Black Female Network Breakfast to bridge the generational gap between current black midshipmen and alumni. She most recently mobilized a team of more than 180 midshipmen, faculty, and alumni to develop the Midshipman Diversity Team to promote greater diversity, inclusivity, and equity within the brigade. Dr. Sharon Uffberg returns with her 51% segment, Force of Nature. This time, she sits down with Pamela Weiss, a Buddhist teacher and author of A Bigger Sky, Awakening a Fierce Feminine Buddhism. Weiss is a guiding teacher at the San Francisco Insight and sits on the teacher council at Spirit Rock Meditation Center. She's also a leadership coach and pioneer in bringing mindfulness programs into the workplace. Could you tell me how you ended up being so deeply involved in Zen and Insight Theravada Buddhism, You're becoming a teacher and now an author? I'd love for you to share your story with us. Yeah. Now I came into uh, Buddhist practice in my 20s, and I was drawn in response to both inner and outer suffering. I was um, I was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes when I was about 10 years old and was uh, struggling in many ways to make sense of living with an illness, of sort of a battle going on between myself and my body. And despite having many years of quite good education, I didn't find that the schooling that I had received was really answering the big questions that I had. And so eventually I found my way to San Francisco Zen Center. And um, (laughs) I remember thinking what a strange place it was, you know, that the people there were weird, people with bald heads and long black gowns. But there was something about them that really touched me, that really pulled on me. And now looking back, I can see that it's a, there was a quality of presence. There was a attunement. There was a deep kindness that I felt. But at the time, <laughs> I remember just thinking, whatever it is these people have got, that's what I want. At that point, I just fell right in. And you stayed, um, you stayed for a long time. You know, you stayed and studied for a long time and then went on to study, in, you know, two different practices, correct? Right, yeah. So I lived at um, Green Gulch Farm and Tassajara, which is San Francisco Zen Center's mountain monastery, for about five years as a full-time resident. And then uh, about five years in, I met my now husband, and I fell in love, and out I went. Um, At that time, there wasn't really a way for me to both be uh, fully engaged in the practice and also fully engaged in the world. And uh, it was through him, actually, that I started to practice in the Theravada and Insight meditation tradition and began to sit more and more long retreats in that tradition and then eventually went through teacher training and now am teaching in that tradition as well. So you recently released your first book, A Bigger Sky, Awakening a Fierce Feminine Buddhism. I'd love to hear what compelled you to write this book, 
why did you choose to write it as a memoir, you know, essentially weaving the feminine Buddhist stories into your own story. It's very fascinating um, how, you know, how that came to be. And I, I'd, I'd love for you to tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, you know, there are so many really terrific Buddhist books out these days. And I saw for myself that, um, I would say I felt that I was really hungry for a more personal story. Um, I wanted to hear a more personal story, which for me feels like a more feminine orientation to the teachings. And there's a way in which a lot of Dharma, Dharma is the Buddhist teaching, there's a way in which the Dharma teachings that are offered in books often are, here's the teaching and then here's a personal example. And in some ways, I wanted to flip that narrative. I wanted the backbone of the book to be a personal story uh, that started with my own story, and that there would be teaching woven through that. Um, and as I wrote, it became, it wasn't just my story, but I ended up telling stories of other Buddhist women, uh, the women surrounding the Buddha, and also uh, women in current times. Telling the stories of the women who are important in Buddha's life and relaying his life from their perspective sounds like it seems becoming more and more important to you as you were writing this. And, you know, is it because you felt that that was missing in other Buddhist books or that it was something that you yourself were searching for? How did um, how did that become kind of the this the feminine side, how does that end up turning into really what your book is about? Yeah, it's a great question. I, I think it's useful to tell a little story here, which is um, every morning in Zen temples around the world, there's this beautiful practice of bowing and chanting to the lineage. So the names of all the ancestors from 2,600 years back in the Soto Zen tradition that I practiced in, it was started with Buddha and came through all the ancestors in India, in China, through Japan, down through Shunryu Suzuki Roshi, who founded San Francisco Zen Center. And it's a beautiful practice of acknowledgement, of remembering, of respect, of gratitude. Um, and one, maybe a year after I had left Zen Center, I came back for a visit to the monastery. And in the early morning when we were doing this recitation, there was a new chant that was announced, to my surprise. And it was the names of the women ancestors. And it was such a vivid experience for me of hearing these names and at the end, and not knowing them, right? And then at the end of the recitation, I just burst into tears. And I felt at that time, I was like, oh, I didn't even know I was missing these women. I didn't even know that their names were missing. I just was going along with what had been offered. And so that, I think, was in many ways the seed that planted my interest of wanting to bring these voices, these perspectives, these stories more to the fore. I think it's true that the feminine story is often missing 
in many religious traditions, not just Buddhism. And it seems to me that these feminine stories uh, have become more and more important to share throughout different traditions. So my question to you is, uh, one, you know, are these stories that you've researched that have already been told before? Are you rewriting stories into tradition based mm-hmm. on some of the things that you have heard? Uh, are these stories being embraced by the current established Buddhist leadership? Um, it's a lot of questions, but I think it all <laughs> yes. kind of has the same theme. Yeah, well, it's a really interesting um, experience for me in writing the book because as I went to tell the story of the life of the Buddha. I wanted to also tell the stories of the women who surrounded him. Uh, his mother who died when he was, you know, within a week after he was born, his aunt who raised him, and his wife. And what I found was there wasn't very much there. You know, the Buddha's wife, Yasodhara, is referred to in many of the early Buddhist texts as the mother of Rahula, who is their son. So she doesn't even get her own name, you know? And I did as much research as I could, and there's some things that are known, but what I ended up doing in the book was uh, turning to fiction. And I ended up writing the story of the Buddha through their perspectives. So what was it like, not just the story of the Buddha's mother or the story of the Buddha's aunt or the story of his wife, but what the experience of being in that time and place was through their eyes, through their bodies, through their experience. And that's the part that I think is largely left out. Um, I will say that there are quite a lot of, I'm not the first one to do this, let me say that, but there are a lot of other authors who have also brought forth some of these stories and that there's more and more of that that's happening, which is a wonderful thing. But you know, none of the Buddhist teachings were written down for hundreds of years after he spoke them. It was an oral tradition for a long time. And when the teachings were recorded, they were recorded primarily by male monastic scribes who, you know, did their own version of editing. Um, They didn't include a lot of the perspectives of women. And when they did, it was mostly, you know, rife with misogyny. So it's a hard history to reconstruct. So how do you make peace with that? You know, as a practicing Buddhist, as someone who clearly has dedicated a large portion of your adult life to the teachings, how are you dealing with the patriarchal culture um, are you finding you're making some inroads? Um, are you feeling that you have a cadre of other Buddhists that are embracing this? Yeah, that's a, such a good question. There, I will tell you that there are times I've felt uh, very strongly just that question, like, do I really want to carry this mantle of such a, a deeply misogynistic tradition? And yet, as you said earlier, It's true in all spiritual traditions. Um, And in many ways, the teachings themselves of the Buddha are quite open and quite beautiful and really um, have the possibility for deep transformation. So I think of it more as um, weaving in the pieces that got truncated or left out rather than 
um, trying to rewrite the whole thing. Um, and I, I believe that those stories and those perspectives were probably there. It's just that they didn't get written down. So I think it's up to those of us, people like me, who are dedicated practitioners and teachers in the tradition to call them up and bring them forward. And <laughs> certainly it feels to me that it's something that our world uh, needs quite desperately at this moment. Well, I really thank you for that and appreciate you your dedication to it. So I know that's a big part of what this first book of yours was about, A Bigger Sky, Awakening of Fierce Feminine Buddhism. Um, what are you working on now? Well, interestingly, because I, was, I had so much fun writing in this historical fiction mode and really taking on the stories of uh, Queen Maya, the Buddha's mother, and um, Mahabhajapati, his aunt, and Yasodhara, his wife. I am now looking to write uh, a purely historical fiction story of the lives of some of the early Buddhist nuns. And some of their lives are captured. We know they were part of the community. We know that they had awakening experiences because their poems of, of awakening are recorded. But almost nothing is really known about the fullness, the flesh, you know, of their lives. And so that part, um, I'm very excited to be picking up and telling a more embodied story, if you will, of what the lives of those women may have been like. And that, because it wasn't written down, has to be fiction. That's wonderful. That sounds like such an interesting project. So, it's Pamela, fun how for can me. <laughs> I bet? Um, how can people find you and your work? You have a website. Spell your name. Like, let the people listening share your book title. Let the people listening find you. Sure. So the book is called A Bigger Sky: Awakening a Fierce Feminine Buddhism. And the website is my name, Pamela Weiss, W-E-I-S-S, dot com. So you can find more information about me. You can find talks and teachings and guided meditations and news about the book um, and so on on the website. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Pamela Weiss. And this is Dr. Sharon Uffberg on Force of Nature for 51%. Dr. Sharon Uffberg is co-founder of the personal development wellness company Borrowed Wisdom in California. That's our show for this week. Thanks to Tina Rennick for production assistance. Our executive producer is Dr. Alan Shartok. Our theme music is Glow in the Dark by Kevin Bartlett. This show is a national production of Northeast Public Radio. If you'd like to hear this show again, sign up for our podcast or visit the 51% archives on our website at wamc.org. This week's show is number 1636. 